Hey guys, you're listening to the Macro Trading Floor. This episode is brought to you by Saxo Bank. Welcome everyone. It's good to have you back at the Macro Trading Floor. As you know, this is the most actionable macro podcast out there. Now, this is Alf speaking. It's August 18th of 2022. My buddy Andreas here with me as always. And um, we just had uh, the Fed Minutes, Andreas. And uh, actually, there were there was a little bit for everybody in there. There were some uh, Fed members that said that the risks of over tightening are not to be, um, you know, ignored completely. And there were other Fed members saying that, you know, if oil drops a bit or whatever, uh, gas drops a bit, they're not gonna be very, you know, relaxed about it because prices could jump back up again. What they want to see dropping is the sticky prices, the sticky inflation uh, components, right? So, what do you make of the Fed minutes overall? I, I, I think, first of all, it's noteworthy that they talk about the sticky part of inflation to the extent that they do, because I guess it's a month back um, when Jay Powell uh, was standing at the press conference, basically telling us only to watch the price at the gas pump uh, as the new measure of inflation targeted by the Federal Reserve. So I think it's quite a, a change of scenery from the press conference to the minutes in that regards. Uh, I personally still hold the view that headline inflation is more important than core inflation simply due to the fact that given the price action that we've seen in energy the severity of the energy price shock then i suppose it's fair to assume that energy is the leading component of inflation if energy drops then i think sticky inflation will follow after a uh, a time lag but obviously the first reaction in markets um, sort of looked at the potential for uh, an easier hiking cycle compared to um, the initial takeaway from the last um, press conference and even uh, the, the, the meetings before that, given that um, it seems as if they are already debating whether to go to lower sort of incremental changes to the Fed funds rate. Uh, and I think personally, that's a very feasible scenario that they will try to slowly but surely fade the um, hiking cycle down to 25 basis points per meeting. But by the end of the day, the market is celebrating that as being a pivot. Uh, to me, it's just a more continuous hiking cycle. I'm not sure that it's the end of any whatsoever pivot. So basically what's being reflected in the curve as well is that the spread between um, software December 2022 and software December 2023 or euro dollar, basically same story. It's actually not getting that inverted again. It's, it's steepening back up. And that's because the message that Fed members are trying to pass across, Andreas, and I agree with you, is we are not going to go to 5%. Fed funds, we are reluctant to be that aggressive because we think that we have done already some damage to via tighter financial conditions. There is a lag before those get actually fully reflected in the economy. But we will not cut rates in 2023, guys. Forget about it. We'll be tight, tighter than our estimate of neutral. We'll be tighter for longer than you think. And that's their, their way to basically fight the market rally and try to pass over some more tighter financial conditions back to markets, which really don't seem impressed, to be honest. I'm looking at the S&P here at almost 4,300. By the time we record, more than 50% of the sell-off from the top has been uh, fully recovered. So it seems like markets have made up their mind that, you know, actually, yeah, rate, rate at 3% or 3.5%, even for a couple of years, it's nothing to be worried about. The economy can handle it. That's what markets are thinking, at least. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, the interesting thing here is that the market is actually rallying alongside 
uh, an increase in real interest rates. Uh, that's a bit in, in, in sharp contrast to what we saw during the early parts of this year, where, where we basically had the reverse correlation between inflation-adjusted interest rates and uh, the development in equity markets. Uh, but I think that kind of reflects that the market is now slowly but surely tempting itself into buying a soft landing slash Goldilocks scenario, mm-hmm. because then if we actually get a soft landing, then you can have like true reflation with real interest rates up, inflation expectations up slightly um, alongside higher equities. And honestly, I've been dipping my toes a bit into this theme as well. Uh, not because I think the outlook is good, but I mean, right about everyone I speak to uh, sound like there is a zombie apocalypse upcoming. And sometimes it's noteworthy uh, just from a sentiment perspective when, when, the, uh, yeah, when the mood is that bad. So this is a very short-term tactical idea from, from my side, but I'm long SPX versus the DAX. So a spread trade between US and Germany as a consequence of this slightly better mood. Oh, now you're giving me an assist, Andreas, to talk about the relative value trade idea, because it is a, I mean, if you buy the S&P and you short the DAX against it, because the S&P has a, a higher volatility, a higher beta, higher intensity as as the long leg of the trade, ultimately, you're going to be slightly long, net long equity beta via the trade, right? But the relative value leg into it, it I find that very interesting, because what you're doing, basically, is you're trying to target what could be one of the jurisdictions most affected going into winter because of the energy story. I mean, one of the news since last week, Andreas, is that forward electricity prices in Germany, in France, by the way, let's stop talking about Germany every single time. In France, it's not going any better. They're actually going through the roof, absolutely through the roof. And uh, we're seeing that starting to be reflected in euro dollar back again. I see euro dollar testing 101. Um, I'm talking about euro against the dollar, not the euro dollar future, uh, testing 101 again. So uh, is that the reason why you think that on a relative value basis, the DAX could underperform the S&P going forward? Well, one reason uh, why I entered this trade um, is that if the CPI in the US has peaked, um, then I guess there's a bit of room to price in uh, a less scary scenario ahead when it comes to Fed tightening relative to the European Central Bank, because that's the important part here, the relative story between the Fed and the ECB. And given that uh, electricity keeps uh, rising, given that uh, natural gas is back at all-time highs in the US at least, um, then I guess the European Central Bank is just much more sensitive to that um, in relation to the inflation story through Q4. Uh, If you look at forward pricing of inflation in Europe, um, it's already at roughly 10% during the fourth quarter, uh, the HICP fixings. Uh, So it is a material um, inflation outlook that we already have priced in. But I'm even tempted to say that it could surprise to the upside uh, as a consequence of, uh, of electricity prices and natural gas prices feeding through with the time lag to uh, to the actual consumer price index. We we saw the uh, CPI report out of the UK printing at above 10%. Again, a result of lagged effects of energy prices. Uh, we know that they just move the needle on the price cap every uh, every other quarter, so to speak, in, in, in the UK. So it takes time um, before the consumer actually faces these increases in the electricity price and in the natural gas price. And there is a lag in the Eurozone as well, while it's much more uh, naturally reflected through the month in the US. 
well, Andreas, anyway, we have the new, uh, the new theory spreading around for which, you know, at some point these prices are going to come down or they are going to stop going up actually to correct myself. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately if the inflation rate is going to stabilize at around three to 4%, central banks are going to be fine with that you know, from nine to three, four, you should be happy with it, right? And then when we go to three or four and plateau there, then central banks are gonna be like, yeah, job done. What? This is no job done, in, from, my, from my point of view, at least. The very reason why we have inflation targets at 2% from central banks is to make sure that inflation expectations are anchored above 0%, you know, with a decent margin of safety, but not at three or 4%. Otherwise, you're, you're going to ask your wages to be five or 6% increasing every year, which will feed into this, you know, vicious cycle of higher purchasing power and hence higher prices. I don't think that nobody has changed the Fed or ECB mandate from two to 4%, actually, if you ask me. No, no. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Uh, the Turkish Central Bank just cut interest rates with inflation running at, I don't even recall the number, but 40% or whatever it is in, in Turkey. Um, so I don't know whether people are betting on Erdogan taking over the reins in, in Europe or in the US. Um, but um, I'm going to Turkey next week. So uh, thumbs up to the Turkish Central Bank from my side. <laughs> <laughs> oh god well at least there is a winner uh here which is everybody now going to turkey and using uh whatever currency and converting yes. into dollar will feel like uh, a very rich guy not nice for the turkish people though i think inflation rates maybe 80 percent last yeah. time i checked it's just ridiculous it's just yeah. you know out of control um talking about turkey and effects moves in emerging markets uh, we have uh quite an interesting guest mm. this week to introduce andrea so maybe we should do that yeah, uh, we have invited Whitney Baker uh, onto the macro trading floor to talk about the best trade uh, out there in the EM space. And um, let's get to the interview. Time to introduce the guest of the week on the macro trading floor. It's Whitney Baker. I'm very happy to announce her as the guest. She's a very known macro investor. She ran emerging market uh, at Bridgewater before, and now she runs her own firm, which is called Totem Macro. Whitney, nice to have you on. Hey, fellas. Uh, thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. It's good to have you, Whitney. Um, in, in terms of the current business cycle, uh, it is obviously slowing, uh, and every time things turn sour, we obviously start to look for the backholders. So that was also the perfect title of your recent uh, research knows. So why don't you give us your overview of who the backholders are? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, where I sort of came on here, you, you asked me to, to pitch a trade, and I think the most asymmetric trade relates to Taiwan, but really it's just a microcosm of of this this point you're making, which is, you know, the way I kind of describe the inflection we're going through and why everything that's dominating the market is really macro volatility right now is that we are at the tail end of a really fluky secular environment, 40 years when we had basically unlimited liquidity and money creation, but that like normal, that didn't actually go in and, and create the inflation you would expect because at the same time as we kind of depegged from gold and, and enabled all this liquidity. We also opened up to China, de-recognized Taiwan and recognized the PRC. And so you had this combo of a secular liquidity environment plus a secular globalization environment that basically meant there was lots of spending power, but nothing got more expensive because the Chinese and, and sort of other global suppliers basically built 
the, the demand with their own supply, right? So that was a bit fluky and self-reinforcing. The deficits it created in the U.S. and the U.K. and other you know, Western consumers were automatically supplied by China and then funded by China through China's purchase of treasuries and other U.S. assets. I'm saying China colloquially, but you know, surplus countries in general. Um, and so that kept everything kind of in this tidy, self-reinforcing, virtuous circle. We then had a long cyclical upswing, right? But even before COVID, last 10 years is like, you know, all right, no one wants anything in the old economy anymore. That was the 2000s. Boom, overinvestment, bust, 10 years of working through the issues around balance sheet repair and excess capacity. Meanwhile, the only people that get, you know, lift off and, and sort of get themselves off the floor is basically the US and North Asia. And that's why you had China and the US and very you know, disinflationary tech-driven cycle, right, for the last 10 years. That's not secular. That's, you know, each cycle has different drivers and each cycle kind of ebbs and inflects between those, right? It was housing and old economy before, it was tech in the 90s, it's tech now, and so on. Then on top of that, you obviously had post-COVID a huge, two things happen, right? Huge amounts of stimulus, like money printing, fiscal, you know, disbursement of that money in a way that you're printing checks and mailing it to people. So they're spending on a bunch of broad things in the economy. And it takes a lot of people to do a little bit of extra spending to get CPI to go up, which is why we had, you know, main reason why we had asset inflation from QE after the financial crisis. And this time we have broad consumer inflation, as well as asset inflation, because the degree of monetary stimulus was so extreme. So that sort of trifecta, I like to call that risk on cubed. So we're going from risk on cubed to risk off cubed. And in the same way, risk on cubed was all very self-reinforcing and it all disproportionately benefited long duration, disproportionately um, dollar denominated, you know, sort of assets, generally assets, disinflationary beneficiary assets, those sorts of, of, um, of uh, assets and geographies have done well, both secularly and cyclically, and are extremely overvalued and overowned and over-earning at this point in the, uh, in the sort of at the tail end of this bubble. Um, so, so anyway, I'm, I'm kind of, that's kind of a long-winded, um, you know, meandering uh, wander through the world that we're, we've been in and we're going into. But just as something can be self-reinforcing on the upside, it can obviously turn into a vicious spiral on the downside. And essentially all of this stuff is, is priced for perfection by very virtue of the fact that so much flow has gone into it during the bubble and during the preceding cyclical upswing in particular. Excellent macro backdrop to discuss. So I'm going to follow up with a couple of questions. Uh, actually, just one, I would say. It, it, you talked about uh, effectively the reversing of the secular liquidity and uh, globalization trends. So can you help us understand how do you see that unfolding? How do we actually unravel all the way back this liquidity cycle and globalization cycle? How will this work in practice? Yeah, so I think basically what you're seeing on the geopolitical side, and let's start with there, because as you know, as I said, you've had a lot of demand that was enabled by a huge amount of of liquidity. And what I mean by that is like, without sort of doing the gold bug tin hat thing, if you go back to 71, right, Nixon at that point, it was very similar to actually what Trump did in 2018, which was you're late in a cycle, you want to have a big fiscal spending binge late in a cycle when the economy is already overheating, that creates deficits. 
at that time, as well as inflation, at that time, you are running a currency peg effectively, right? Because there's still gold convertibility. And that means you kind of are forced to choose. Do you keep the peg or do you keep the spending? And ultimately, Nixon chose the spending, which, I mean, probably anybody uh, would anybody in that kind of incentive structure would have? It's just the easier path to take, right? But then at the same time, you know, as I say, late in, later that year in October, UN resolution sort of de-recognizing Taiwan and recognizing the PRC. So it's interesting because both of those elements, when I circle back, you know, 50 years later, like I'm sitting here last week on CPI day, which is like my favorite day of the month, and you're seeing CPI, you know, I'm like waiting for it to happen because I'm over here in, in London. So it's sort of like five five hours to go until CPI day. And then at that precise moment, the Chinese drop a, a white paper. I think it was the first white paper since 2005 about basically, you know, their ownership of Taiwan, their sovereignty over it, the fact that it's basically theirs for the taking and that that's part of the rejuvenation of the country, right? So these two things are happening on the same day. And I just thought that was kind of cute as a way to frame, you know, coming this back this full cycle. So I think basically what I would have said to you before Russia invaded Ukraine was that we're in kind of a secular breaking apart. You know, it could it could move quite slowly because there's going to be this rivalry between China, like an upstart challenger with a reasonable amount of economic importance at this point. Like the USSR was never economically comparable. Japan was somewhat close, but didn't have the sustainability that China has because incomes were already so high in the 80s in Japan and prices were so high. And so the point is, you know, that China basically was always going to pose this this um, this sort of challenge for for the U.S. Uh, for U.S. hegemony and and their sort of rules based global order, and so the problem with um, you know the Russian invasion was that it really accelerated everything. It forced the world to balkanize into these two blocks in a really really uh, abrupt way, and it also you know you're also basically saying to coming back to that that self reinforcing cycle before. You've been selling these people bits of paper for 50 years and saying, look, sell, give us your goods or your oil or whatever. In exchange, you get this claim on us, this paper claim on us, and it's going to be safe and secure and blah. it's just like gold, no problem, don't worry, right? And then ultimately you debased the, uh, essentially you debased the currency, but you can think about that as just printing a bunch, creating a lot of inflation, um, and then, you know, eviscerating the assets of one of your biggest creditor nations at the stroke of a pen, right? So even the rule of law sort of elements around having that paper changed. And so, you know, ever since then, we've been in a world where people are basically picking sides and picking their priorities. You know, does India go in for the $30 a barrel oil discount or do they not? You know, how, how does this all break out? And so I think what this ultimately means is that really for the better part of 25, 30 years, We've focused a lot on um, everything being cheap and available and, you know, short and quick. And what we are now focusing on is recreating these whole, like essentially taking one big global supply chain and turning it into two supply chains. And um, there's going to be a lot of duplicative investment involved in doing that and, and sort of uh, frictions involved in doing that that make things cost more and so on. I think trade dependencies in the two blocks will um you know, sort of be, become very kind of uh, ins insulated from each other in a way. So there will be cross-border trade flows and so on, but there will be elements of national security that mandate that the U.S. has semiconductor supply or, you know, generic drug supply or whatever it might be. So along a bunch of different angles, we're going to have that. A lot of investment and build that's essentially non-value creating because we're just 
duplicating something that already exists leads to higher prices and inflation because it's spending up front and only gets you supply later. Um, and you're going to have a lot more random geopolitical risk. You know, it's like just random frictions popping up, non-macro or non-economic driven events that create a lot of asymmetry and a lot of volatility. So that's that geopolitical side. The liquidity piece is... Um, it's honestly from these starting valuations, it's going to be really, really painful for the countries that are, you know, the debtor countries dependent on the, the surplus sort of Eastern bloc, if you will, lending money into us and holding our assets and keeping our treasuries down. Like for 30 years, it was China keeping yields down, then it was the Fed, and now neither of them are around. So there's this liquidity hole to hold all of these assets, these paper assets that have massively outstripped the economy. And when I think about that, the biggest issue is to kind of wrap up the... Um, Paper assets, that's wealth, you know, well, paper wealth relative to nominal GDP, let's say, things like household wealth to incomes or market caps to GDP, all those sorts of reads. Um, problem is those are paper claims on real things, right? And ultimately you build wealth so that you can monetize it and use it to spend in the future. And these countries that have reserve wealth are certainly doing that. China's already been doing that with the Belt and Road for, you know, since 2013, converting paper assets into real strategic priorities. And that's what's going to happen on the reserve front. Reserves will just shrink. On the um, broader, you know, portfolio assets and so on, you're just going to have this pretty serious decline in what reads of wealth, absolutely, and relative to, uh, in real terms, so relative to inflation, and also relative to the economy at large. So these extreme multiples of wealth are going to come down. And that's just simply because there's not enough real things that exist to satisfy all of these paper claims on real things at these price levels. If we look at the current energy crisis in uh, Europe and uh, across the globe, I, I would argue that uh, the current rally that we see in risk assets is a puzzle to many since we are right uh, in the middle of this energy crisis. You can see that I'm sweating at a, as a pig at the moment because it's very hot in Denmark where I'm from. Uh, it's not that I don't, it's not that we ration energy yet in Denmark, but I just don't have air condition. We haven't built any air yeah, condition sure. in Denmark. That's, that's the reason why. But uh, I wanted to ask you about the relation between equity markets and this ongoing energy crisis. What do you think of this interlink between energy markets and equities? Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it matters a few different ways, right? What are equity markets driven by? They're driven, like, firstly, all asset returns are driven by what happens relative to what's priced in at the beginning. So a very, you know, important baseline to start with is what sort of scenario are different equity markets around the world pricing in, right? And so I would argue that, you know, the NASDAQ on 20 times peak you know, earnings is discounting a very rosy scenario relative to what I think is going to be chronically 6 to 9% inflation. And then you've got over here in Europe where a lot of this stuff came in super cheap and unloved going into this. And uh, yes, this is a pretty acute shock, but there's nothing like the degree of positioning and overvaluation and rosiness priced into like a, an essentially frothy market. So that's your starting point. That doesn't mean it can't then be worse than expected because obviously nobody expected, you know, TTF to, to go up by 12 times or something. Um, so I think the way to think about it, firstly, grounded in what's priced in and what's discounted by current uh, pricing, and then say, okay, well, What's actually going on here? What's going on in Europe at large and, and Japan, I should say, as well? Now, 
our view has long been that what we're seeing in the developed world is basically like quite comparable to EM balance of payments crises. Uh, just if you stay with me for a second, in the sense that um, you know, normally what that would mean is a debtor, debtor country is running hot, has had this long upswing, is funding it with foreign capital, and then all of a sudden the foreigners are like, oh man, I don't have any more balance sheet to keep giving you crap, or you know, like I don't, I think your currency is expensive and your equities aren't discounting anything reasonable, and so that flow starts to slow, currencies fall, you know, rates shoot up, they have to defend it, inflation shoots up at the same time, growth is cratering, right, and asset prices are cratering. That's a stagflationary, externally driven recession and adjustment process. And that is exactly what Japan and to a much greater degree, Europe and the UK are dealing with right now. And ultimately, the US is the most vulnerable to a really vicious unwind of that, because coming back to the previous discussion, it's like running these huge twin imbalances, running six to 9% core inflation, you know, um, at a time when basically the people who have funded those deficits are no longer around and willing to do that. And that sets up the, the very EM-like, or let's call it, you know, pound in, in 1992 ERM crisis, you know, or even like going back to the Nixon example, this is a similar set of trade-offs, right? The thing that's surprising about all this is that it happened, uh, you know, the first two uh, developed countries to go through this sort of like BOP crisis, if you think about it being Europe and Japan, are like these chronic surplus creditor, you know, huge current account, huge goods providers, you know, supply hubs effectively, which is not normally what you would expect. But of course, after Russia happened, after the invasion happened and everything that went on with particularly gas and European energy, um, that was about a 4% of GDP income shock for the country. Now, of course, oil prices are going up in the U.S., but U.S. also has an oil sector. So, you know, effectively, the oil producers benefit, consumers always get hit. And then in the U.S., it all stays within the same system so that the higher incomes of oil producers get taxed. They then, you know, have more labor and do more spending. And so it all kind of stays in a closed circuit. Whereas in Europe, they don't have any, you know, they're huge net commodity importers even before this happened. So it's just a straight 4% of GDP hit, right? Um, and so that's why Europe is almost definitely going to be in a pretty severe recession um, to get through this, just like EMs do when they have a huge income shock, uh, external income shock, and um, and why the U.S. is, you know, is not really on deck to have anything like the severity of recession that would be needed to choke off inflation in a sustainable way. And so that's why I think at this point you're getting this really acute pricing in European equities, Eastern European equities, and so on, which relates to higher geopolitical risk premium, you know, higher rates pulling forward of tightening, higher inflation, lower real growth, everything all at the same time, which is very much what EMs tend to experience, but which is not normally priced into DM assets because normally it's a recession, but then you can ease into it or you can stimulate to soften yeah. the blow, yeah. right? No more, right? Yeah, I Whitney, I really like the analogy of the uh, emerging market shock kind of uh, co uh, coming to uh, to Europe. At the end of the day, it's a terms of trade problem, which is a very rare thing for a developed market, right? But if you think about it, Europe is supplying a lot of things, but it's completely dependent on one import, which is tends to be pretty crucial at this stage, right? So you have an exogenous 
terms of trade shock. It's basically an emerging market situation right here in front of us. Sorry, I just wanted to riff off that for one sec. If you think about this new East, this Eastern Bloc, you ha- it used to be basically Russia's the senior partner under USSR and China's the junior partner. Now it's China's the senior partner, Russia's the junior partner. Russia has been, you know, Europe's been a supplier of manufacturing output that's reliant, supply hub reliant on cheap Russian energy. China's been a supply hub um, that has exported cheap goods to the U.S. So the U.S. is dependent on the supply of cheap Chinese labor, effectively. And so when you think about what's happening to Europe in the context of energy, it's pretty easy to make a leap to then translate that to what would happen if there was an acute issue between the U.S. and China um, and how that would ripple through to core goods pricing and, and all of that stuff. Yeah. So now that we have a bit of your big picture macro backdrop, and we discussed as well a bit the energy situation, which is quite crucial in the macro environment. I want to move or at least set the ground a bit for your uh, macro trade idea. Because at the beginning, we talked about bag holders, or Andreas talked about bag holders, which are the ones you're looking for if you believe that we are going to change the secular liquidity and globalization backdrop we had. So if you screen a little bit around for bag holders, what do you find on your monitor? Well, so here's what's interesting about it. Um, the that sort of risk off cubed element means that everything that was been the biggest beneficiaries of this bubble um, are also the ones that you know they're very dependent on liquidity, but they always were. They were expensive coming into this. They were secular beneficiaries coming into this, and then they just had this extreme, extreme price move driven by a lot of liquidity after COVID. So it's like you have a bubbly, frothy peak. And they're also vulnerable to the normal unwinding cycle because we're not we're no longer going to be in a tech cycle. We're going to be in an old economy cycle. And you have this sec- secular change as well. So the good news, I guess, today is that you can short a lot of that stuff or play for a sort of internal rotation, given the divergences of that, and that there's an alignment around each of those things being kind of, you know, downside exposures for for frothy, bubbly, techy, long-duration type assets, right? And even nominal bonds in the developed world, I would put in that bucket as well. And so the, the, the bigger issue is actually this is the broader definancialization, the reconvergence of asset valuations or market caps with the economy, with household incomes, that kind of, you know, bringing back to earth this concept of financial wealth and, you know, real economic cash flows or nominal economic cash flows, that happens as a byproduct of just the withdrawal of liquidity. Like putting aside whatever happens to the macro growth inflation mix, the geopolitical risk premium, putting all that stuff aside, all you need for stuff that did so well in a bubble to do badly is firstly, you know, the flows slow. They don't even need to contract. They just slow because people cannot keep supporting these current level of prices. Then when you get tightening after a bubble like this, flows actually decline, right? And besides, you know, everyone owns more of this stuff than they ever have before. U.S. stocks are more as a share of total global stocks than they've ever been before, even in the in like 1929. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's extreme, extreme, right? So that's good on that front. The bad news is this is just terrible for global 60-40, nominal asset returns, um, which are, of course, skewed in, in market cap weighting to those very markets. Um, and like when we worked out, like we did this thing where we had systematically two spectrums, one geopolitical risk, one inflecting financial regime risk or tightening liquidity, high inflation risk. Basically, there's only like 
15% of global assets by market cap that are somewhat defensive to both. It's like, you know, if you think inflation is going to be high for a while and there's going to be geopolitical risk all over the place, like, yeah, gold is going to do well. Okay, that's not very big as a market cap. And so there's a bunch of different things. But the basic point is this is going to be really tough for beta, um, particularly in real terms, because there's going to be just real wealth destruction. And uh, but that being said, it's pretty good for for alpha. Um, in terms of kind of playing those internal risk rotations and geographic divergences and sector divergences and growth over or value over growth and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's extreme divergences that are very unsustainable for a variety of different reasons that are all aligned in the same direction. So for me, that increases the conviction in a, in a trade. And it just means that you can gross up your, you know, your alpha positions and, and play that rotation effectively without really taking so much directional, you know, nominal beta in your portfolio. Whitney, if you're right, then I guess we should assume that long duration assets, such as the very far end of the yield curve, um, NASDAQ, crypto, will all yeah. take a beating during this next wave of trends. Would you consider NASDAQ a good short given the recent rally that we've seen, or would you pick another uh, geographical equity sector to look at? NASDAQ, ARK, you know, crypto, junk, all of that shit, it's all great. I mean, you can short all of it. You know, it's all incredibly liquidity dependent. It's over earning on all these different dimensions. Even if there isn't a recession in the US, which I, I mean, it's sort of weird because people get used to these things like, oh, is there is like it's a binary thing. It's not like, is there a recession or is there not a recession? It's we actually need a four to five percent of GDP contraction in spending at the economy wide level to bring us back into just into balance on the supply demand of both labor and consumer spending. Right. It's a crazy amount of contraction that we need. And, um, you know, it's just not going to happen when you've got three percent terminal rates in your, you know, in your projection. So the thing about the U.S. market and Nasdaq and this stuff, the long, longest duration you can find, the thing that's nice about it is it's pricing in this immaculate disinflation. It's saying, you know, pfft, this whole thing is fucking supply. This supply is going to come back. It's cool. It's just disruptions. You know, no, it's not. It's like literally if you look at the supply of anything, semiconductors, shipping logistics, you know, port throughput, all of these things that were even like the sort of archetypical, you know, shortages. It's like shortages relative to this level of demand way up here. You know, the, the amount actually being supplied is impressively high. So what we actually need, considering like no investment in anything has been done for 10 years, right? So what we actually need is a huge demand contraction. And you don't get that when inflation is six points above rates. You just don't because ultimately your cash flows, nominal GDP will be growing at nine or 10%. And you know rates are ter terming out at you know terminal rate of three three and a half something like that currently priced into the market. Market says inflation's coming down four points in the next six months with with this setup like with negative seven percent real rates, and like coming back to the EM analogy, everybody knows that has looked at these EM crises. You can't really buy the bottom of them or buy the adjustment process until realized real rates are significantly positive, because only when you get that do things like interest payments and the interest burden or debt service burden and credit flows at large. It's only at that point when that stuff starts to get unaffordable relative to economic cash flows 
you know, when when it when rates are rising, you know, or rates are higher and uh, above the pace of nominal GDP growth. So you can short all of that stuff. Basically, would be my point. I would like to have that sort of on. In a high inflation environment, you got to be careful about nominally shorting too many things. So on the other side of that, we've got like a bunch of LATAM, uh, you know, very, very cheap, old economy, commodity geared, inflation beneficiary. You know, we've tight our nominal rates are 14 <laughs> percent, like those types of places that came into this very cheap. We've got that kind of stuff on the other side. So it truly is grossing up and playing the rotation. Now, within EM, the most extreme uh, way to play this whole rotation is Taiwan. It's like without a shadow of a doubt, right? It's even even more extreme relative to its own history than things like the NASDAQ. Um, and so with as an EM investor, like, yes, we can talk through the extremely acute, um, let's say, adjustment in earnings, adjustment in multiples, all of the things that are at the same time going to simultaneously hit Taiwan, it's all just effectively what's hitting the NASDAQ, but kind of on overdrive. Yeah. So Whitney, what we always ask uh, the uh, guest of the macro trading floor is uh, what could go wrong with your trade? I mean, this is your base case, but what can go wrong? That's an, an early exit card. Uh, out of jail card basically for you. Yeah, I mean, really, um, if we all start buying kind of four laptops again, like we were in 2020, you're going to have an issue, right, with this trade. Or if there's, um, you know, if it, in the low probability event that there is material disinflation, it's not a zero chance that you do get audit sort of you know, automatic disinflation because supply comes from somewhere or labor supply expands or whatever, and crypto bros kind of come in and do something productive or whatever. Fine. In that case, this goes wrong. But the balance of probabilities is extremely aligned against it. And so when I think about, you know, I can give you, I literally have a bullet pointed list here of 23 different reasons why at the micro and the, the macro level, there are so many ways to win and very little uh, very few ways to lose shorting something like Taiwanese equities. And at the same time, you know, when we talk about what defines a good macro trade or what defines an asymmetric um, payout profile, you want more, a, a bunch of ways to win, not many ways to lose. And if you do win, you want the upside to be really big. And if you lose, you want the downside to be low, right? And so when I look at stocks, a stock short, you know, which is what I'm saying in Taiwan, you basically want things that are overvalued, overowned, and overearning, and multiple reasons why under each of those buckets. And I can give you like 85 of them, right, for Taiwan. Then you say, okay, well, listen, um, Shorting stocks is kind of naturally, you know, adversely asymmetric because they can only go to zero and obviously they can go against you and they get bigger when they do and it's like, fuck. But so you want some compensation for that. So the best shorts are ones where there's some sort of tail risk, really extreme downside scenario. So you're maximizing the chance that the thing might have material, you know, solvency risk or, or event risk of some kind. In the Taiwanese case, you know, it's not an indebted country like the rest of North Asia. But what's interesting about it is the financial part of the market, which is more or less, you know, 20 percent or, you know, tech is about two thirds of the market. Obviously, semis are a big part of that. On the financial side, these very systemically important, like hundreds and hundreds of billion billions of U.S. dollars have been channeled by the Taiwanese life insurers basically abroad in an unhedged way. So if you want to look at who the leveraged holders are of last cycle's dollar frothy bubbly assets, 
it's basically Taiwanese lifers who are levered, you know, 30 to, to, to one. So you've got that on the solvency risk and on the, this is kind of where the geopolitical element comes in. I can't think of any better way to hedge your geopolitical scenario than being short Taiwan, both like as a, a good way to kind of add juice to the overall trade short, but also it's just maximally beneficial for your portfolio, right? To think about the added benefit of having some inbuilt hedge to that kind of a scenario. And because like volatility in Taiwan is, is, is implied volatility is pretty low, you can get like a lot of uh, leveraged exposure to that through through you know, out of the money puts or, or whatever, right? So there's a bunch of different ways to express this, but basically it's everything that people are assuming will still exist, but will not exist that we've come to take for granted for like the last two years, 10 years and 40 years. A bit of anecdotal evidence, Whitney. I've actually bought three computers today. So <laughs> at least there's someone left trying to buy the fucking dip here, um, uh, I guess. Well, at least you're, you're sort of acting your book there. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've actually been dipping my toes into uh, more risky positions in recent weeks. So the interview today was bad news for that position. Um, but uh, <laughs> let's see how it all plays out. But this is cognitive dissonance, isn't it? You know, it's cognitive dissonance in the market in the sense that like what's going on is the last couple of months is the market still trying to buy the dip in these sort of meme frothy, frothy type things. I mean, anecdotally, I just spent a bunch of money on a a big trip around Europe in, in November, sorry, in September. So we're sort of each talking our own books, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, to a certain extent we are. Whitney, it was a huge pleasure to interview you. Um, if our audience wants to find out more about Total Macro, where can they find more? Yeah, um, so I'm, I've started this sort of like simulation game called Twitter. I'm having a little bit of fun with it. It's very new. So if you want to kind of get in on the ground floor of that, um, we're at, at Totem Macro, T-O-T-E-M. Uh, and you can always shoot us an email as well on uh, info at totemmacro.com. Well, Whitney, it's really been a pleasure. Very informative interview, very clear opinions, right or wrong, at least they're very well uh, presented and the trade idea is is pretty much asymmetric i think from that perspective especially if you structure it well it's been a pleasure to have you here and we hope to have you back again on the macro trading floor it was great to be on thank you so much guys. hey guys we're back to discuss the trade from our guest which was whitney baker She's a macro investor. She ran emerging markets for Bridgewater for a while. Now she runs her own company called Totem Macro. And Whitney is a short Taiwanese stocks, but it's really rather a short global tech trade, if you ask me. She chose Taiwan because of the composition of the Taiwanese stock index. But if you would ask her whether she would short the Nasdaq, she'd be very happy to do that. And uh, Andreas, I think, as always, we should discuss the underlying thesis behind the macro trade before discussing the implementation of the macro trade itself. I think I want to start from two main points, which were that secular liquidity is going away and secular globalization is going away as well. And that's going to hurt tech broadly, in our opinion. So what do you make of the underlying uh, thesis here? Let's start by looking at um, the inf globalization trend. If you look at uh, the amount of mentions of reshoring slash deglobalization in earnings calls right now from CEOs across the globe, then I guess the, the trend is pretty clear. They're talking about this topic to an extent that we haven't seen since uh, the Berlin Wall, basically. So it is something that's on the radar uh, at sea level. 
in Europe, in the US. Um, and I guess what we need to see right now is action, because so far it's only talk. Uh, we don't really see any, I'd say, material trend uh, of reshoring of manufacturing jobs. Uh, and I think the reason is pretty clear right now. Uh, who the hell is going to take that manufacturing job in the US, uh, for example? I mean, the amount of job openings is, is basically still uh, within spitting distance of all-time highs. Um, and uh, you, you still see the same CEOs mentioning that they struggle to find the right uh, labor for, for the right jobs, right? So I I guess there's a lot of talk about this reshoring trend, but we see no whatsoever action in that direction, if you ask me. Uh, so I guess I sympathize with this theory. I, I'm just not sure that it's tradable short term. Um, that's that's my main point on that. When it comes to liquidity, uh, I think it's a fair point that um, at least for the time being, we, we're currently uh, in, in a regime of, of dwindling liquidity. Uh, so liquidity is not added. Um, it's not added in the US. It's not added in... In, in Europe, uh, China is pondering adding a bit, but but I mean, uh, the net net overall picture across the globe is a shrinking liquidity picture right now. Uh, if you look five ten years ahead, who knows? Uh, I, I'm I'm not ready to just bury the <laughs> the QE regime, um, but I mean it could certainly be right. But I don't think there's any doubt that the next couple of quarters will feel less uh, intriguing from a liquidity perspective. So, mate, my take on that is that the deglobalization story has some merits when it comes to certain things. So what certain things, I mean, especially like relying on energy or, or supply chains to be on-time supply chains, fully offshore supply chains, energy dependence. I mean, those things are probably going to be on the margin slightly reversed. Now, my jargon is very conservative for a reason, because I think economics are what drive CEO decisions over time. And as you just said, it's much easier to shout that you're going to onshore all the manufacturing jobs that you have on planet back to Europe and the US, but it is very uneconomical to do that. Very, very uneconomical. So while certain areas could be onshore back to a certain extent, and that is undebatable, that because of the events that happened and the drawdowns that people had to see in industries and in their own income by depending on, on uh, offshoring, I think that could reverse a little bit. But the other thing is we are not going back to an industrial economy, labor-intensive economy like the 70s. There is no setup, neither from a demographics, nor from a structural growth perspective, not, nor from a composition of the economy itself and the underlying drivers of decision-making by CEOs, et cetera, that could lead towards a 1970s kind of style of, of economy. I don't buy that on a full scale, but I do agree that certain niche could be actually um, on short back again. Secular liquidity. I mean, my shirt says central banks don't print money. So what, what are we talking about here? What kind of, what is liquidity? I mean, it's a word that is thrown around a lot of times. So if you're talking about um, bank reserves, then, well, it's basically QE and expansion of balance sheets of central banks. Again, you need to ask yourself, where are we going? So the system will continuously be based on debt creation and credit creation. So can you, as a pri already indebted private sector and public sector, continue to create credit without accommodation from central banks at the same time? I don't know. I'm not sure. But the secular liquidity withdrawal right now, of course, it's a cyclical liquidity withdrawal. Obviously, as you need to slow down economic activity, you need to slow down animal spirits, you will cyclically withdraw liquidity. So to make it short, I can see a cyclical liquidity withdrawal and a 
marginal secular deglobalization overall, but I don't think that we're going to see a largely uh, important secular um, reversal of trends in both. I just don't see the, the thesis behind. No, uh, I think there is an old saying um, <laughs> saying that uh, you should judge others by their behavior, uh, not by their intentions. Or is it the other way around? But it doesn't really matter here because what I'm trying to say here is that a lot of people will tell you that they intend to do something, but they will never actually take action on it. And I think that's a, a sort of a prime example of what we see from the CEOs right now. Another prime example of it is that um, at least in liberal la-la land where I live in Denmark, Copenhagen, um, people tell me all the time, well, I've stopped flying. But if you look at their actions, they've, they fly more than they've ever done before. Uh, and it's a new peak next year and a new peak the year after. Uh, so there's a big difference between saying something and actually doing something when it comes to, the, it comes to this deglobalization trend as well. Uh, and I, 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 I frankly don't subscribe to it fully yet uh, as a consequence of namely that we only hear the talk yet, but we haven't walked the talk. Um, that's for sure. Pretty much. And there's the other thing which was behind the thesis is that long-end rates would spike up, not only because of persistent inflationary pressures that would come from a full onshoring back of manufacturing jobs. Obviously, that would be largely inflationary via wage pressures on an already tight market, in the US especially. But also, that's going to lead to very high long-end uh, interest rates because nobody is going to basically accept from an emerging market perspective so commodity exporters goods exporters services exporters nobody's going to accept to basically sell these services and goods and get dollars back and recycle these dollars back into treasuries and the fed is not going to buy them anymore because there's going to be no qe and so there's going to be no buyers and yields are going to spike up so no buyers of treasuries and this what do you make of that I think that's um, a bit early to to conclude as well. I, I, I mean, if if you look at the incentives of a um, FX reserve manager, for example, at the Chinese central bank, um, I think they're pretty clear. Uh, they want uh, a liquid, big bond market, sort of below the FX holdings, uh, because they need somewhere to place uh, those FX holdings. Uh, and I mean, is there any? competitive market relative to the treasury market in that regards no is there any just nearly competitive market relative to the treasury market in that regards no so i mean if if i were to manage the uh, pboc or rather the safe as it's called in china uh, the fx reserve management team over there will likely just sit and ask themselves the same question um i mean what can i do with these dollars outside of pocketing them in u.s treasuries um I think you have a point there but um, to make there, but I mean, by the end of the day, at least for the reserves management, there is no competition to the dollar. Yeah. So there are two solutions to change this uh, correct assessment of how the system works right now, and the rest would be to either change the denominator that stands behind uh, your sales of goods or services or commodities or whatever they are, instead of dollars into something else, uh, that's going to take at least a couple of decades. And also you need a competitor. So who's going to take that role? Who's going to take the denominator role there, which is not the US? It's very hard to see at the moment, but it's a very slow process if it goes on. And, it, you know, obviously reserve currencies change, but it takes generally quite some decades for that to happen. So it's not short-term tradable, short-term applicable, let's say. 
The other way, which could be more applicable, is if China or Saudi Arabia or anybody who sells services in exchange for dollars or goods or, or commodities could in instead invest largely in their domestic economy. So if instead of recycling the surpluses into treasuries, they would just invest in China, big times, huge, and also increase consumption, increase wages domestically. Well, China hasn't done that for 20 years. They have accumulated treasuries for 20 years. And the, the share of Chinese consumption as percentage of GDP is amongst the lowest in all developed and emerging markets for a very reason, which is to remain competitive and to make sure that you know, the Chinese Communist Party can still exert a certain control. So I don't think that that sort of business model is going to change anytime soon, but it could be one way where, where things could change. Anyway, I think we are digressing a bit when it comes to the implementation itself of the trade, Andreas, if people want to short global tech. I think one easy way could be to do uh, the SQQQ ETF. So instead of the, the typical QQQ ETF, you buy the SQQQ, which is the short version of it. It's a very simple and uh, an applicable way to, to short um, an ETF uh, that basically replicates tech. And when you say global tech, I mean, Nasdaq is by far the biggest component of it anyway. Uh, as a reminder for you guys, the episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank. They offered quite some decent uh, market coverage in ETFs, in metals, FX, in all other instruments. It's a, it's a very good, uh, friendly platform to um, to have a look at. Yeah, and you can learn more if you go to go to .saxo slash macrofx. We will, of course, add the link in the description uh, below in the podcast app and on YouTube. Uh, but... Finally, if you want to implement Whitney's trade directly, uh, there is an ETF called Yuanta. So Y-U-A-N-T-A, but it's very liquid. We have to uh, remind you of that. Uh, so it is not that easy to get a, a short exposure directly versus the Taiwanese market. Um, but uh, otherwise, there are good proxy trades such as uh, the short NASDAQ trade or basically any other short tech trade uh, or short duration trade out there. Uh, I think you could even short the TLT, um, given her, her thesis here. Um, so admittedly, I also told Whitney that this is basically a middle finger to my buy the fucking dip <laughs> allocation right now. Uh, at least I've slowly but surely move back towards such an allocation, right? Um, being long SPX versus DAX, being long the TLT, et cetera. So um, I lean the other way, admittedly. Andreas, one thing we have to say is that we talk, started talking about Taiwan and last week about Mexico and uh, Poland and Hungary. So um, what are we going to talk about next week? Somebody, North Korea? No, just kidding. So this has <laughs> not become a, a emerging market podcast all of a sudden. We just yeah. thought that we weren't really covering the asset class enough because of the relevance it has in the macro picture right now. And having some good specialists uh, help us shed some light on, on the emerging mm -hmm. markets would be useful. But from next week, don't worry, we're going to get back and uh, talk about the good old stuff again. Yeah. I mean... We will probably touch upon Taiwan just a bit next week again <laughs> because we have uh, the tremendous David Wu guesting the show. So he's uh, he's actually born in Taiwan, I think, but he's the former head of strategy at, at Bank of America. Really, really good guy. So you should look forward to that. Uh, also have to say that uh, Whitney Baker made a very compelling case for the change of structural trends. What I just dislike about the timing is that right now, you're essentially deciding to pee against the wind if you take that asset allocation that she suggested. Uh, and that's always tricky. So um, see you next week for more. Uh, I'm Andreas Steno. 
This is Alfonso Peccatillo and thanks guys for listening as always. We'll talk to you next Sunday.